Good morning again, church. We are continuing our study through the book of 1 Peter. We are in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 12. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and George is over here with Bible in his hand. He'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 through 12 this morning. Peter writes, starting in verse 8, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The title of my message this morning is Avoiding Family Feuds. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather together to be able to be in this place. And knowing, Holy Spirit, you are here to teach us, to instruct us in all things that we need for life and for godliness. And we thank you, Lord, that you're not only going to give us information, but you'll give us that application that we need to change us and to draw us closer to you in our relationship with you. Father, I do pray if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you this morning, they're not born again today, would you especially speak to their heart and help them to see their need to turn from their sin and turn to you today to find hope, to find peace, to find that forgiveness. Bless our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And I used to watch Family Feud, the episodes on, on TV, the game show. I, I liked it. It was enjoyable. But anymore, it's kind of gotten too inappropriate with too much coarse jesting and all. But I did find a website that had a list of actual answers given by contestants on the Family Feud. Now, I understand some of these contestants are, are nervous and, and they're under a lot of pressure to say the right thing. They want to win. But, but some of these you go, really? What were you thinking? Let me give you ten of them. Question. During what month of pregnancy does a woman begin to look pregnant? September. <laughs> Question. Name something that you'd probably never want the police to find in the trunk of your car. Pickles. Pickles. We're, we're looking at off, the, off answers. That, that you'd expect that one, Preston. Well, you wouldn't expect pickles, okay? Name something a blind person might use. A sword. It's crazy. Name a famous bridge. The Bridge Over Troubled Waters. I guess so. Number five, name a part of the body that begins with N. Knee. <laughs> these are actual answers by these people, okay? Number six, name an animal whose eggs you'd probably never eat for breakfast. Hamster. 
<laughs> Question. Name a famous or fictional Willie. Answer. Willie the Pooh. <laughs> kind of ties into the next one. Name a kind of bear. Answer. Papa. <laughs> Two more. Name something that follows the word pork. Cupine. Final last one. Name something you hit when it's not working. Answer, your spouse. <laughs> I hope not. I've always thought it would be hilarious to watch the actual family feuds that take place after the show taping was over. After they've lost in the show because of some dumb answer like that, and they get, you know, back behind stage, what were you thinking? Because it's when you're away from the public eye that your real family is shaped and, and your real family is formed. And in the same way, when we gather together as God's family in this place, away from the world, we as a family are being shaped. We are being formed. How we treat each other, the amount of time we spend developing strong family relationships with one another. Now let me just bring us back to, uh, to where we left off, where, we, where we've been studying over the last few weeks. You know that Peter's been talking about three major areas of social interaction in society, our relationship to the government, at the workplace, and our relationship with our employer or employee relationship, and in the home, husbands and wives, and their relationship to each other. We've also noted that Peter says the general role for all of us, and all of those roles can be summed up with one word. Remember what that was? Submission. Submission. Submitting to authority, wives submit to their husbands, servants to their masters, and so on. But now Peter takes it to a fourth area of social interaction. And this is restricted now only to the Christian believer, and that is we, the church. As believers, we live in society. We have jobs, we have marriages, but we also have a family of believers. And that's why he says, Peter, in verse 8, Finally, all of you, speaking to the church, He's writing to Christian believers who interact with each other. He says, have compassion one for another. Why is that? Because the world is watching. The world is watching us in our relationship to the government. The world is watching us to see how our relationship is with our employer or employees. Uh, you know, they're going to be able to look and see into our marriages and see how we do that. But most of them are not going to come into the church and check us out. Some will, but, but, but some will come to our meetings. But certainly, uh, they're going to see how we deal with each other, the church, when we're out in the world. So for that reason, I've divided our study up into three points. If you're taking notes, Peter's going to show us, first of all, the picture of God's family. Number two, the presence of conflict in God's family. And number three, the power of God in God's family. Number one, the picture of God's family. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 tells us this. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. For he said to God, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. That is a wonderful truth to us. Jesus, as believers in the family of God, is our older brother. He's not ashamed, is what the verse says, to call us his brother or to call us you his sister. 
We are one in Him. We are a family of believers. And it's the Father's desire that we all come out of the, the spiritual state of infancy and mature to the point where we can get along together within the body of Christ. But as I've shared this brief poem before, a well-known poem, to dwell above with saints we love, oh, that'll be glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> and that's why Peter begins with verse 8. Look at verse 8. He says, Finally, all of you, be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous. Yes, when you look at the church, it's easy to see from all outward appearances, we are far from perfect. Yet Jesus, even in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, prayed, Father, may they be one as we are one. Now, when Jesus said that, he wasn't talking about one denomination. He wasn't talking about one large ecumenical movement. God has purposely made the church today to be made up of different denominations, different organizations. And there are believers in every one of these different denominations that make up the body of Christ. And there's that oneness that we all should have as believers in Christ. But what Jesus wants us to experience there in John 17 is a practical oneness. It's, it's learning to get along together within the body of Christ. So important that we learn to mature and grow in our spiritual lives and we learn how to get along with one another. Listen, the way to the way the Lord listen to the way the Lord sees us in Hebrews 10 Hebrews 10 Chapter 10, verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So because of Jesus' offering for us, dying upon the cross, he has perfected us positionally. Through the shedding of his blood at Calvary, we are made perfect in him. Now we need to strive to live that way. See, Peter's painting a picture for us of what the family of God should look like. And he says, first and foremost, he says, we're to be of one mind. Your translation might say uh, to be like-minded. Now, just think about this for a moment. Is that possible to be like-minded? If we right now were to open a discussion on politics, on the style of clothing, or on what shows are appropriate to watch on television, or, or what styles of Christian music are appropriate to listen to, or, or what songs you should or shouldn't sing in church, we would open up a whole can of worms, and we would have one huge disagreement. That's just the way we are. We don't agree on everything. I have certain views on eschatology, on the, on the end times. I have a view on the rapture, on the tribulation, on the millennium. I have views about the Holy Spirit. Some of you may not share those views, and that's okay. I always want to be gracious enough to allow you to be wrong. But, but uh, <laughs> it's meant to be funny. I, I mean, we, because we, we're going to have different views. And it's okay as long as they're not contrary to Scripture and, and uh, heresy. But think about it. The early church didn't always agree on everything, did they? They had disagreements. They had arguments. They had divisions over things like, like meat sacrificed to idols and over keeping the Sabbath and over which days are appropriate to worship on and which aren't and which, which would have should be taken care of by the church finances and which shouldn't be. Paul and Barnabas had a huge argument over John Mark. Twelve apostles argued over who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And yet God, through His Word, and, and the Apostle Peter calls us to be of one mind. And actually, the word of one mind describes the mutual love we should have for each other as Christian believers. This is, this is from two Greek words meaning to think the same. It's an exhortation to unity, to be like-minded, 
one that is often repeated in the scriptures. Philippians 2, verse 2 and 3, Paul writes, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And he goes on, Let nothing be done through strife or, vain, or selfish ambition or conceit, but the knowledge of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. See, Peter here is revealing what the family of God uh, should be like. We should be like-minded. And then he lists four things that we should be like-minded in. So if you're wondering what they are, he gives us those four things. Verse 8, we should have compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, and be courteous. Let's look at those four things for a moment. First one is compassion. The word compassion means to get into someone else's skin. Not under someone else's skin. That's easy to do. It's the other way around. Get, get into what they're feeling. Maybe if you've been maybe at an amusement park and, and a mom may lose track of their, their toddler, three or four-year-old, and, and you see them panicking. You, you see them, and, 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 and it's a horrible experience. Now, when you look at that, you don't look at it in pity as much as you, you re- relate to that panic. It, it's pity plus action. There's a relatability. I, I mean, you, you can imagine how it would be for you, and so you go and you're, you're helping them look. You know how they feel. You know what they're feeling. In the same way, Jesus saw the multitude that had been following him. The disciples wanted to send them away. Yet Jesus was moved with compassion, the scripture says, and he sat them down and he fed them spiritually and he fed them physically. So we need to have compassion one for another. Second thing Peter says we're to have uh, to be like-minded in is to love as brothers. It's the Greek word phileo for the word love. It's, a, it's having a fondness and an, an affection for each other. It's a brotherly love. It's a, a stick to You know, brothers, they, they stick together. You've heard the phrase, blood is thicker than, than water. You know, brothers rally together. We may fight each other in the home, but if someone outside the family comes against the family, then, then watch out. You know, who are you? And, and in fact, having that love one for another, John tells us in 1 John, it's a sign that we're truly born again. 1 John 3.14 we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. So we need to have compassion one for another. We need to have brotherly love for one, for, for one another. Treat each other as family. Men treating sisters as a sister in the Lord. You know, sisters treating other men as brothers in the Lord. And then the third thing Peter tells us where to, to be is tender-hearted. That, that's the word good or soft-hearted. It means having grace and goodness in dealing with others. I think of Luke chapter 9 when James and John wanted to call fire down from heaven. Lord, should we torch them for, for this? And, and Jesus said, you don't know what manner of spirit you are. I came not to destroy, but to save. At that point, they were not being very tender-hearted. Tender-hearted would be best defined as being deeply concerned for others. Let me put it this way. The church ought to be the place where the walking wounded feel at home in. People who are wounded and beat up from, the, from outside in the world should be able to come in and, 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 and uh, we, should excel, we should excel at being tender-hearted with each other. Something we should be great at. And then the, the last word that we see here that Peter uses that we should be like-minded in is in courteous. Now this word courteous really doesn't explain a lot. When I think of the word courteous, I think of my mom telling me to say please and say thank you and, and you know, open the doors for a lady and those type of things. Yet a, a better translation for this word would be be humble-minded. Be humble-minded. Paul puts it this way in Romans 12:3. For I say to you through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, 
but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Paul reiterates that in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. See, there should be a humility that marks our church family. It's hard to have divisions in the church where humility is our attitude. Pride, we know, is the opposite of humility. It's a temptation to think that you're better than someone else. But when the world looks at the church family, they should see humility and a most unusual unity, a spirit of oneness that is not found any place else on this earth. They should, be, they should see believers who are so united and closely knit together that it just blows them away how we support, how we pray for one another, even through the difficulties and the trials that we all face. So compassion and love and tender hearts and humility or courteousness, that's a perfect picture of God's family. But sadly, what the world sees in some churches is bickering and complaining and, and grumbling and division and slander. And unfortunately, we don't always fit the perfect picture of God's family because of point number two, the presence of conflict in God's family. Perhaps you've heard this limerick, there once were two cats of Kilkenny, each thought there was one cat, there was one cat too many, they fought and they spit, they clawed and they bit, till instead of two cats, there weren't any. Listen, the difference between a strong, healthy family of God and a weak, sick one is not whether conflicts exist. Conflicts will exist, but our attitude towards one another and approach in handling those conflicts. There will always be conflicts in, in God's family because we're all still sinners. You know, we haven't completely got rid of that old sin nature. It's not until there's no more sin where there'll be no more conflicts. But how to handle those conflicts can cause us to grow and to be that healthy and strong church that God desires us to be. So when it comes to the church conflicts and getting along with each other, what do you do? If, if you come across someone who's really grouchy and, and gripey and, and insulting to you or lies to you or tries to hurt you or threatens to hurt you, well, I'm glad you asked. Because Peter tells us in verses 9 through 11 how we are to respond. Look at verse 9. We're to not be returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he would love life and see good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Apparently in this church, there were those that were being wronged, being offended. And instead of forgiving one another, as Christ has forgiven us, they were returning evil for evil. In verse 9, they were being reviled and reviling back. They were, in verse 10, not refraining their tongues from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. So what's the solution? Well, Peter tells us. He says, stop it. I recently saw this video, and I love it. You should look it up when you get home. It's a Bob Newhart video of him playing a psychiatrist. And a woman comes in with all of her problems, and he sits down and he explains the terms to her. And, and he, he says, you know, your, your solution is really simple. And she says, well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. He says, wow, being buried alive in a box, that's horrible. Have you ever been buried alive in a box? She says, no. Then he says, well, I have two words for you that, that will solve your problem. Two important words that I want you to listen to very careful that will help you. And here they are. Stop it! Stop it! She goes on, you don't understand. 
I'm also bulimic. I stick my fingers down my throat. He says again, stop it. You're some kind of nut. Don't do that. She says, well, I also have these self-destructive relationships with men. Stop it. I'm afraid to drive. Stop it. How are you going to get around town? Stop it. She finally says, I don't like this therapy at all. You just keep telling me to stop it. He says, oh, very calmly. Oh, so you think we're moving too, too quickly. Oh, all right. I understand. Let me just give you ten words that should help. Stop it or I'll bury you alive in a box. <laughs> I love it. Peter says, stop it. Listen, if someone does something evil to you, you don't do something back evil to them. Stop it. If someone reviles you, don't revile back. Stop it. You don't hit back. You don't fight back. You don't yell back. Instead, Peter says, you bless back. And then he says, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Warren Wearsby puts it this way. As Christians, we can live on one of three levels. We can return evil for good, which is the satanic level. We can return good for evil and evil for evil, which is the human level. Or we can return good for evil, which is the divine level. Jesus is the perfect example of this latter approach. As God's loving children, we must do more than give an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is the basis for justice. We must operate on the basis of mercy, for that is the way God deals with us. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ and God forgave you. Reminds me of a story of old Joe who was dying and, and for years he'd been at odds with his friend Bill. They were formerly best friends. So waiting, wanted to straighten things out before he died. He sent word for Bill to come and see him. When Bill arrived, Joe told him that he was afraid to go into eternity with this you know, bad feeling between them. And then very reluctantly and with great effort, Joe apologized for the things he had said, for the things that he's done. He also assured Bill that he had forgiven him for his offenses. Everything seemed fine until Bill turned to go. And as he walked out of the room, Joe called out after him. But remember, if I get better, none of this counts. <laughs> Listen, we are only fooling ourselves if you think that you can be a, a good Christian and not forgive. Now, we know that it's not so hard to forgive those that we think well of, those that you respect. But what about those that you don't? What about those folks that you kind of really have a problem with? They've recognized they were wrong. They confessed to you, but they don't like you and you really don't like them. Is that a reason not to forgive? Listen, Jesus made it very clearly that our Father expects far more from us. He said in Luke six twenty-seven and 28, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. And then Jesus gave us the best example of all of that as he hung there on the cross and he prayed, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. I can't emphasize, overemphasize enough. If we refuse to forgive others, then we are living in disobedience to the Lord. And an unforgiving spirit disrupts our fellowship with God. It disrupts our fellowship with each other. How absurd it is for a Christian who has experienced the Lord's forgiveness from a mountain of sin and guilt and shame that he could have or she could have an unforgiving attitude towards those that have wronged them. Because an unforgiving Christian is bound to be a miserable one. And if you're an unwilling to forgive because you're nursing that, that hatred or anger in your heart, then you're hurting yourself and you're hurting your others and you're in sin. So, stop it. Next, 
Peter says in verse 10, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Do you want to love life? Do you want to have good days? I think we all do. We tell people that, hey, have a good day. You know, you know, people have told me, hey, have a good day. So if we want to have a good day, if we want to have a good life, here Peter tells us how we are to do it. He says, if you want to love life, then love people. You know, there are just some people out there that you talk to and you realize they just really hate life. Solomon was the classic example of this. Of this. A man who should have loved life. He had everything going for him. Yet, listen to what he wrote in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 17. Therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for all his vanity and grasping for the wind. <laughs> Sadly, there are some that, that I think they made that their life verse, the way they walk around. <laughs> What's your life verse? Well, my life verse is I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. Really? Okay. <laughs> You know, you, you talk to them and it's like they, they're Eeyore. You know, how you doing? Well, you know, just enduring life one day at a time. Peter says, no. You don't have to just endure life. So you, you, you're here to enjoy life. See, enjoying life is you realize that God is sovereign. You realize that God is in control. That He is the one that allows the good and the frustrating people to come into your life for His own purposes to work in our lives what needs to be there. Our job in return is to bless people, pray for people, to love people, and not jump all over them. Our job is to refrain our tongues from evil and our lips from speaking deceit. See, that verse forbids us from speaking maliciously towards one another. Our speech should never be that of deception or innuendos or misleading statements. Peter goes on, verse 11, let him turn away from evil. In other words, when we are confronted with a circumstance or situation that would lead us to a dead-end street of sin and its consequences, we're to turn around and go in the other direction. Choose another path. Same thought that the psalmist has in Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in the law he meditates day and night. He doesn't go down this path, he goes down this path. How much heartache and misery would be avoided if believers were to make tracks when they were tempted to stay and fight and argue and, and flee places where sin is easily accessible? When temptation rears its ugly head, turn aside, run, go the opposite direction. Instead of doing evil, Peter says, let's do good and you'll really enjoy your life. The best way to enjoy life is to do good and turn away from evil. That's the will of God. Now, Christianity not only tells us what we shouldn't do, it also tells me what we should do. There's the negative and there's the positive. The, you know, Peter says, let him turn away from evil, but instead, verse 11, so it gives us something to do, let him seek peace and pursue it. Maybe you've seen those YouTube videos of the lion chasing after that zebra, you know, and they're running around and, and just, it's just hot pursuit and, and pounces on a zebra and he's got lunch or dinner or breakfast or whatever it is. That's the idea between the word pursue. It is, it's chasing after something in a hot pursuit. Peter says we need to do that when it comes to peace within the family of God. Seeking peace can be controlling our actions, making sure you've made every effort to listen to the other side and not be so, so hasty with, with your answers. Because sometimes things are more complex than they seem and sometimes 
There's more information that is missing, that you don't have all the facts. And because we can't see a person's heart, we shouldn't assume what we think is in their hearts. Proverbs 18.13 tells us, He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and a shame to him. Rather, Peter says, seek peace and pursue it. We do this by giving a soft answer when someone verbally attacks us. We do this when we forgive those who have sinned against us. We do this by avoiding to speak evil and instead we humble ourselves. Guard your tongue, turn away from evil, do good and pursue peace with each other. Now when we live like that, something great happens. And this brings us to our final point, uh, number three, the power of God in the family of God. Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter here tells us there's a reward for being kind to each other. There's a reward for being tender-hearted and, and courteous. There are blessings that come from living this out practically in our lives and avoiding family feuds. It's the power of God moving through the man or woman of God. Peter says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. You know, there's nothing negative in that statement. It's not, watch out, God's watching you. You know, so often I, I, we think that. When I was a kid, my mom would use that phrase for that reason. Remember, God is watching you as if to warn us to stay out of trouble. And I know that she meant it that way because I used it for my boys in the same way as they're growing up. I say, you better watch out. God is watching you. But I would also tell them, and the Holy Spirit lives in me and he's going to tell me what you guys are doing. So listen up. And you know what? God was really faithful in them growing up. They, they were caught all the time. It's like, what were you doing? Uh, you know, I just knew it, you know. But that's not the, what the Word says. You know, you know, we would say, God's right. But that, because uh, um, hearing that God is watching you, yeah, it can be a force to not want to do something that's evil or wrong, but that's not the thought here. Because this phrase, the eyes of the Lord, it was a very common Old Testament term. And when it's used in this way, it's always related to God's watchfulness over His people. As He watches out for us, as He watches carefully, uh, it's a special concern for for us from Him. It's a watchful oversight eye. Proverbs 5.21 says, For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and He ponders all His paths. See, it's not so much associated with, with judgment as it is with God's watchful eye over mankind. Yeah, he's assessing good. Yes, he's assessing evil, but it's the idea of his omniscience. It's not supposed to emphasize the judgmental aspect of God's watchfulness, just the omniscience of God. In other words, he's watching every area of our lives. We see God's heart in this in 2 Chronicles 16.9, where it says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. So we see the eyes of the Lord are that. God is watching us oh, carefully. His eyes are constantly on us. Well, why is that? Well, we're told here to respond to our prayers. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. Again, the idea here is that God is, is watching us not to bring the hammer down of judgment, but God is watching us to answer the prayers of the righteous. The Lord is watching and waiting to meet every need. That, that's the idea. He wants to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. 
Listen, Peter is simply saying, look, you can live like this. You don't have to retaliate. You don't have to get your own pound of flesh. You don't have to take vengeance into your own hands. You don't have to live that way. Simply have the right attitude, a gracious and a humble attitude, a sympathetic, harmonious attitude where you can give back love to your enemies even if they give you hate. Don't retaliate. And if you have, stop it. Live under the authority of the Word of God with a controlled tongue, controlled lips, turning away from evil, doing good, pursuing peace, hunting after it, no matter how intensely you must do that. And you can live without fear because whatever difficulty you get into, you don't need to be the ones who, you know, to get you out of it. All you need to do is let the Lord know what's going on. His eyes are on you and He hears your prayers. What a tremendous promise that is. What power there is available to those of us in the family of God. Oh, I love what Pastor Chuck would always say, glorious. That was one of his famous, famous words, glorious. It's glorious how the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But, always a but, it's the last half of verse 12. But the faith of the Lord is against those who do evil. <clears throat> now understand, the faith of the Lord is different than the eyes of the Lord. The eyes of the Lord are God watching us to meet every need, to hear every prayer, to direct our paths, to lead us in, in the way of righteousness. The face of the Lord, on the other hand, that's often used for judgment. The eyes speak of omniscience. The face demonstrates an expression of anger. And that's the way the term is used here. When God becomes angry, the Bible talks about his face. Genesis 6:19, verse 13 says, regarding Lot and Sodom, for we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. See, God sees the wicked, but he sees them with an angry face because of the wickedness and sin. And I can't help but think the face of the Lord right now is against Vladimir Putin. 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 Putin, I mean, thousands of people, including older people, pregnant women, as well as children, people with disabilities, being forced underground, shelters, subway stations to escape the explosions. You know, we see some of the, the church members singing down in those basements, just singing to the Lord. Many people are separated from families and effectively trapped. Schools are being destroyed by Russian bombing. I've seen before and after pictures, places that were, were beautiful, the landscaping gorgeous. And now it's all bombed out and, and burnt up. Men and women, children being murdered. Listen, God sees the atrocities against the people of Ukraine. God sees the wickedness. Most definitely the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Rest assured, judgment will come. But the good news again, Peter says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. See, we're talking about the power of God and the family of God. When we are united in prayer, God will do great things. And let me tell you, church, right now we have brothers and sisters in Ukraine. In the Lord, they're Christians just like you, just like me. They sing same, some of the same songs we sing. We need to be praying for them. Someone posted this yesterday, and I thought it was something that would really make us think. It says this, when you go to church this Sunday and you feel that old temptation to point out what's wrong with the place, the coffee's lukewarm, the lights are too bright, the temperature is wrong, the music is too loud, and of course you don't know the songs, 
Remember in that moment, there's a Ukrainian church gathering in, in the subway tunnel to worship while bombs blast overhead. No coffee, no instruments, no leader pushing them to worship. They're down there in real time and in real life worshiping the king above kings as the world is crumbling down. We need to be united with our brothers and sisters in the church in Ukraine. We need to be united in getting the gospel out. We need to be united in love one for another. We need to be united and committed to the word of God. I want to close with this and then we'll enter into a time of communion. Proverbs 30, verse 24 through 28 tells us this. There are four things which are little on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are people not strong, yet they prepare their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a feeble folk, yet they make their homes in the crags. The locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. The spider skillfully grasps with his hands, and it's in, his, and it's in, its king's, in the king's palaces. Four little creatures on this earth, but are exceedingly wise. The ants, their wisdom is in provision. They store up food for the coming winter. The badger, their wisdom is in their protection. They make their home hidden in the rocks. Fourth one is the spider. Their wisdom is in persistence. They can go anywhere, even in king's palaces, and are persistent in making strong webs. In the same way, as we work together like busy ants in God's family, He provides for us. Like a badger, we are protected when we make our home in Him, hidden in the rock of Jesus Christ. And like a spider, great things can be accomplished if we are persistent, if we don't give up. But then there's a third little creature here listed, the, the locust or the grasshopper. They have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. Now, one individual grasshopper, if it were to land on you, no big deal. Just flick the thing off. If you're a girly guy, you might scream a little bit. Oh, grasshopper. But a swarm of grasshoppers moving in unity will devour everything in its sight. I would scream a lot. <laughs> but listen, in the same way, God's people individually, we're not that impressive. We can be like little bugs. We can bug people. <laughs> but united, we can make a mark on this world for good. Just look at Jesus' disciples. There in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, He empowered them uh, to, to eventually turn the world upside down. And think about this, when the Lord said to them to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, when did the Holy Spirit come upon them? When they were all gathered in one place together in one accord. The point is, we will see the power of God in the family of God when there is unity, when there is no one repaying evil for evil, when we are seeking peace and pursuing it. There's a power that unfolds when God's people are united in prayer. For our weapons of warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. That's our weapon, prayer. I believe that was the secret of the success of the early church, and that's the secret of what God wants to do in this church. There's power when we pray. His ears are open to our prayers. And we need to be praying every day for opportunities to be kind to people, to be praying especially for our enemies, if we want to avoid family feuds and instead see God move mightily in this church, then we need to be a praying church. And as I said, most definitely we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. And we need to pray for our brothers and sisters here. Maybe there's conflicts you have going on. Pray that God would give us tender hearts uh, towards one another, forgiving hearts, just as Christ has forgiven us. Why? Because Peter says God's ears are open to our prayers. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can have the right attitude, the right heart, humble, sympathetic, harmonious attitude. We can love our enemies as, as, as even though you know, they may hate you, you don't retaliate. You can live that way without fear because God's eyes are on us. As we close and we end our time of communion, 
I mean, it's a, it's a time to pray, obviously, to commune with our Lord, to thank Him for what He did upon the cross. You know, to pray for one another. We, need, we can pray for one another. We can pray for, for our, our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. It's also a time that we can examine our hearts and go, oh, Lord, is my heart not right? Am, am I really not being forgiving as I should be? Look at all you've done for me on the cross. We look at the communion, the, the bread and the, the, the juice, and we think, wow, this represents the cross. How could I not be forgiving if you would forgive me to that extent, love me to that extent? And then just trust him to move and work in our hearts. So as we, we enter into communion, again, communion is for believers. If you've not committed your life to Jesus Christ, do so this morning. You know, communion is for us to celebrate what He's done for us. If you've not accepted that, then I would just ask you to let the trade pass you by. Don't partake of that. Because the Bible does speak of judgment that comes upon you if you take that and you don't really have a relationship with Jesus Christ. The better solution would be surrender your life to Him. Give your life to Him. Quit running away from Him. Quit living in the flesh and living in the selfishness. Live for Jesus Christ. You do that. God will forgive you of your sin. God will wash you clean. He'll give you joy and peace, an enjoyable life, a good life, and then eternity to follow. So give your life to Christ. Commit to Him. Ask Him to forgive you. And then partake with us in communion. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You. Thank You for Your love and grace towards us. Thank You for this opportunity that we can gather together as a church to remember the cross. And first and foremost, Father, we want to lift up our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, those that, that are standing firm for their faith. Lord, I want to lift up the missionaries that have chosen to stick it out there and continue to minister to the people that are hurting. Protect them. Protect the families, I pray, Lord. Give them wisdom. I pray an end to the conflict, Lord, as well. We pray an end to this conflict. Lord, we know that nothing gets past your eyes. And you have a plan and a purpose in this, and, and we know judgment is going to come. We don't know when, but we know it will. And so we just want to pray for the people there, pray for um, just protection, Lord. We want to, Lord, pray for, for clean hearts, Lord, ourselves. You know, your word says in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me that lead me in the way of everlasting. Lord, if there's anything in me, if I've not been forgiving to someone that's asked for forgiveness, if I've been holding bitterness in my heart, if I've been causing problems, conflicts, well, Lord, I, I just ask you that you for, forgive me for that. Forgive us for that, Lord. Help us to love as you have loved. Lord, as you went to the cross and died for every one of our sins, rose again from the dead. I do pray, Lord, if there's any here that does not surrender their life to you, they would do so this morning. They do so right now. Just ask them for, for the forgiveness of their sins and commit their life to you. Bless this time of communion, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.